Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Elixir 1.11.4 was released. So this is just a point release, and the main thing we're getting from this is better support for Erlang OTP24, which is coming, but not yet released. So that'll just be a nice thing. And and that includes some features like support float 16 on bitstrings, which is relevant for NX. And mixlocal.rebar task will now install rebar 3 version 3.14.4, compiled with Erlang OTP21. Also in the news, there's a new website out there. It's called elixirstream.dev. You may have seen me tweet about this. Um, this is a new idea. It's an open preview, so I wouldn't say that it's fully launched. It's more like a soft launch. But the idea behind this, uh, behind this site is that uh, you may have seen this on Twitter already, and, and we talk about uh, various tips and tricks you know, of, of Elixir or you know, something in Ecto that's really interesting. Short little digestible tips, right? So the idea behind this site is that uh, anybody can come in and submit these tips, and you get some really nice tweets on the other side of it. So it'll be tweeted by the Elixir Stream Twitter handle, and it generates that little tweet image with the code inside of it, syntax highlighting, and all the beautiful stuff that usually goes in there that you like. Another plus here is that with all these tips consolidated on a platform, you can search them, and we can see where this evolves. That's where the site is right now. I uh, launched it this this past week. Where this could evolve could be interesting. I don't know if we'll get there, but it could evolve into things like a recipes and, and cookbooks or maybe a weekly newsletter. It'd be pretty interesting. We'll see where it goes. I think it'd be really interesting, but uh, it is uh, made by yours truly. And uh, of course, it's developed in the pedal stack. Uh, let me know if anyone has any feedback. Um, all the stuff is in, all the code is in open source. So anybody can really contribute to that. And, and I promise you that if we get to the point of recipes and cookbooks, there will not be an eight-minute story about about grandmas and how this recipe was passed down and SEO tricks. It's just going to be the content. I promise you that. <laughs> yeah, what I think is cool about David's project here is, you know, we do have a lot of people in the community who are creating really nice tips and content. And if you're coming new to the community, it can be kind of hard to discover those. So this can just be a place where people can come. It's an easy place to share for people who want to follow along and see what's going on. And then they can just jump off from there into the different places where people are creating specific content. So that's really cool. Would you be offended if I made your service tweet Memphis and then got your Twitter account banned? <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> there is a moderation cue to it. So if I see the word Memphis in there, uh, inside joke there, Twitter had a bug <laughs> that if you if you tweeted the word Memphis, for some reason, your account got uh, banned. <laughs> yeah. So any tweets, uh, any tips are, are moderated first just to make sure there's no spam coming in and uh, gives us an opportunity to correct uh, typos if there are any. Um, but yeah. <laughs> good, good, good. Thanks, Kate. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, so next up, if you haven't heard, there's an Elixir book club, and they've decided that the first book they'll be reading through is Designing Elixir Systems with OTP by James Edward Gray II and Bruce A. Tate. I have not read that one yet, and I am interested to read it, so I think I might just pick that up and join in on the fun. Next up, TechCrunch covered a London-based startup called SumUp. What was interesting about this is they raised $895 million. It was like 750 euros because that's where it's denominated in. 
But the most important thing for us is that their backend systems are written in Elixir. This is relevant as another data point for companies using Elixir showing real value and growing really fast. Congrats to them. Not quite about Elixir, but it's it's adjacent. Tailwind CSS is getting a, an update. There's an experimental JIT. Man, JIT is just in our vocabulary lately, isn't it? There's an experimental JIT for building uh, CSS styles. So if you've ever used Tailwind CSS before, you know that in the development environment, Tailwind includes a lot of CSS, uh, like nine megabytes worth, but that's only in development, right? But that still has some trouble with you know browsers and dev tools. And before you go to prod, you would use a tool called Purge CSS that would delete all the unused styles, right? So the JIT is uh, is going to help solve that problem. So the idea is that even in development, all of the styles that you use are are the only ones that are generated, and that would just continue on to deployment to production. This is heavily inspired by tooling in Windy CSS. So great job to Windy CSS for trailblazing there. Uh, there's a nice YouTube video about it, uh, announcement by Adam. So give that a look and give it a try. There's still some limitations, still experimental, but uh, pretty cool. I'm glad to see the tooling getting better. Yeah, and that's relevant just because as those of us who like the pedal stack where the T portion is tailwind, this is a nice kind of quality of life improvement for developers. Last up, xdoc 0.24 was released. Check out the change log, and you can notice that the biggest internal changes are dropping jQuery and replacing Highlight.js with Makeup, which is a library that's written in pure Elixir for, that does the tokenizing and color highlighting for syntax. So, awesome. And that's it for the news. Today is a different kind of episode. We're just going to be talking with each other about a few different ideas that we've kind of observed and seen in the community, and just kind of have some commentary about that and see what each other thinks. And maybe some of it will resonate with you. And we'd love to hear your feedback after you, we've had a chance to see where we think these things are going too. So first up is this idea of how people model, mentally model Elixir code or Elixir programs. There are a lot of people who are coming to the community from object-oriented programming and their mental model is of objects, right? They're thinking, I have this object and maybe it's composed of these other objects and this object has a relation to this other object. And that's how they're mentally modeling their applications. When you come to Elixir, that can be very disconcerting because you're not dealing with objects. So it's just kind of like this idea of, you know, maybe kind of hearing from each other. We've been working with Elixir for a number of years now. And just kind of what are the mental models that we think of and how that might help people who are coming in and kind of maybe having that struggle. You know, when you guys first came to Elixir, I'm sure there was some of that struggle, right? Of like, I don't, I don't know how to make this work. I don't know. I'd just love to hear from you what that was like for you guys. So when I first started in Elixir, I remember doing the Prague Prague Elixir course. This is not necessarily an advertisement, but if you like learning through videos and kind of doing coding with someone else, kind of leading you along the way, it, it was really helpful for me. Um, and so what they kind of do is they build plug they kind of build an api using plug but without plug and without telling you that they're doing it like plug right and so they're like here let's build this thing and then we're going to pipe it into this other function and transform your request a little bit and they're like okay and then the next episode is like let's pipe that into another function that transforms it a little bit and then eventually you have like four or five transforms right and you get really far and you're like actually doing responding to these api requests and then they're like, huzzah, it's, this is what plug is like. This is what Phoenix is like. If you just 
tweak this thing right here. Like you basically just wrote Phoenix. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And so that kind of, because that was my introduction, I kind of just think of it as a series of transformations. Like I just think of everything in Elixir as, and so, and so especially in Phoenix, right? Like, because I started with that background, I know that Phoenix is just, it just has a, a some piece of, it starts with a piece of data and it's just transforming that piece of data, the con object, right? Until eventually it takes action on it. And so that's kind of how I model thinking of my Elixir code, at least writing it, right? Not necessarily how it runs. I guess that's also how it runs, right? How it runs and how I write it is just like a pipeline of transformations. I'm the same way. Even when I did object-oriented programming for a couple of years. I did it exclusively for, I don't know, three years or so, four years. And that's not even counting all the, you know, little hacking that I did back when I didn't have a programmer's job, right? And all that was, oh, but even while I was writing object-oriented code, I always thought of it as a series of like data streams. There was never really a time that I remember for myself that I was writing a program just for the sake of like modeling a cat or an animal or something like that. You know, the the traditional object oriented like uh, uh, examples. It was always because I had some piece of data that I needed and I needed to I needed it to look like something else or I needed it to do something else. It didn't seem that strange to me going to a functional language like Elixir. It actually clicked even more, you know, with a, the, the pipeline uh, operator there that, that really helped me. I, everything just clicked. And, and it was the same way, you know, like you said, Kate, is it was just data coming in and being transformed and transformed and transformed, you know. And then on the other side, hopefully you got what, you, what you're looking for. But, you know, that's, that's ideal scenarios, too. And it was also a, a, a thing that really helped me out with Elixir was, was error handling. I really liked the story about error handling and, and Elixir. And, and, and as I learned more about programming generally, I realized that the error handling in Elixir was good, I thought, because it was much more monadic. <laughs> oh, that's a big word there. What word is that? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you. So this is computer science stuff. But the, the thing that I, the only part of it that I know is, is the result monad, the result monad. So the, the, the tuples, we see the tuples everywhere, the okay. And then the, the data or the error. Yeah, I just, method, I just know? call those tuples. Why are you calling them monadic? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the pattern of, of what's <laughs> happening to that data, right? Um, you, you know, you're getting the data and the metadata about that data, right? The metadata would be like the atom. Okay. You know, the data's okay. We're good. Move on. Um, or it's an error. And, and I really, really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. I could actually see now how error handling was, you know, used in that pipeline of transformations anyway. So getting back to the, you know, like the, the mental model there, it, it was always about data transformations for me. And, and Elixir just really plugged, plugged into that for me. And I loved it. The mental model, though, like how I separate code, because that, that's, that's usually where you go next. You know, it's not just one big file. You, you usually feel a little dirty when you have just one big file that's doing everything. Maybe, maybe, it's not so, maybe it's not so dirty. That's how I feel. In my world, there's usually a web layer, some, some layer that's accepting the input. It's very cautious about the input. It does some sanitizing of the data, something like that. Only accepts, you know, the, the things that I want. And rejects everything else. So that's that's the top layer, right? That's the web layer. That may be a different app, may not be, maybe just a different context. I don't know. Just something else. Then there's a layer under that 
where it's usually some orchestration layer. This is where I want to do something with that data. And then usually below that layer is a persistence layer. Where, where do I want to cache it? Where do I want to save it? You know, do I want to upload it to something like S3? I don't know. There's, so there's, there's a couple of different layers. And I usually have those three. You know, the web layer where I accept the data or a command line, you know, stuff like that. Orchestration layer and then a persistence layer of some sort. One thing that's always a little bit bugged me about though about about those layers, it's like Ecto is in all of those, <laughs> and, and that's why sometimes I don't feel like I, my layers are as clean cut as maybe they should be, because Ecto is in all of them. Well, I think that that kind of goes back to why they broke out pieces of Ecto, right? Because I think people found a lot of value in change sets and wanted to use them outside of your persistence layer. And right. so I really enjoyed what Sasha Yurik was saying an episode or two ago when he suggested using change sets in your web layer as your like means of sanitizing that input, right? Yeah, exactly. Still, some days it, does, it just doesn't, doesn't feel right. And maybe that's because I'm still used to, you know, active record, you know, and that's being, that's everywhere. That's the validation too, you know, like that's, but it's super powerful. And so that was one thing that I remember liking in, you know, with Ecto is the whole chain set paradigm anyway. But yeah, like it feels good, but there's some days where it's just like, ah, there's something about this doesn't feel right. And I can't put my finger on it yet. I liked what you said about like, even before doing Elixir, I think you were saying that you still kind of, or you were saying in object-oriented languages, you were still kind of thinking in transformations. Yeah. I can kind of think back to like writing a lot of JavaScript and like like wishing I had the pipeline operator because I think I'm with you in thinking that I just needed to transform data. And like as a programmer, you just inherently want to separate things out cleanly. And so you might have like three different functions that are doing three separate kinds of transformations rather than just clobbering them into one big function. But then it's like A equals do transformation A, B equals do transformation <laughs> B on A, and then C yeah. is do transformation C on B. And it's like, you have these like intermediate variables and I'm always have to like think of names like A is... <laughs> Uh, what do I call a trimmed, trimmed a, thing? You know. <laughs> what is B called? Uh, Sanitized A. <laughs> yeah. It's like for no reason, I'm just making these intermediate variables. That's one thing I've really appreciated about the pipeline operator is it, it, it's really helped me continue that mental model, I guess. Yeah. What do you think, Mark? You know, we we talked about layers a little bit there. We got the web, orchestration, maybe persistence. I'm certainly there's other layers that are involved there depending on what you're doing, but how how do you uh how do you structure some of your code? Yeah, it's interesting because we had that talk with Sasha Yurich. What was interesting is, you know, he was talking about this idea like they had also he called these like heretical ideas, right? This idea of having your ecto schemas that are your persistence, that are your database table related ones to pull those outside of core. And we'd also done that in our projects. The main reason is, is because I think of like the, the default Phoenix way for organizing code. If I generate a user's context underneath the user's namespace, it's going to create a user schema. So it's nested down inside that namespace. And the problem is, is I think of namespace organization and, you know, spaghetti code is that when I have code over here in this module, this whole like tree of 
namespace depth and everything. And it, it has a reference over to, to this other tree and it's deeply referencing something in there. Then that's like spaghetti code to me. So like where I get a lot of interlocking dependencies. The idea is like, you know, if you do that with these business data structures, which are your ecto schemas, then they have all these relationships to each other. Like a user has a profile or a user has orders and orders have items. And, you know, like you get this very deeply nested thing and it's, and it becomes very entangling, at least at how it feels to me. And so we found also the same idea of like, hey, I'm just going to pull that out and make that adjacent into its own separate namespace. And I call that like schemas because they are all interrelating to each other. They're all like a big web of interrelation. So I just don't let them be deep. And then my business logic can just refer to those. And so I, I think of it as like in terms of how like the, the graphs look if I were to chart this all out and draw the relationships and dependencies. Does that make sense to you guys? It relates a little bit to um, some ideas of how, how folks manage like microservices and the schemas between that. And usually a, a solution there is protobufs, an extension, you know, gRPC to communicate those, those protobufs between each service. So, you know, it, you're inside the same language, inside the same deployment, so you don't need all that stuff. But you kind of have that same little structure going on where you have... Uh, as I'm understanding it, you have a, a context called schemas. Inside of it is all your schemas. Everything can can share that. You can just reach right in and you don't have to like worry about di differences. You don't have to worry about all this other stuff. I'm curious about that. Those schemas, are they just schemas or do they also inform how to how to persist, how to change? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. Like Sasha talked about like not having those contained change sets in his design and his approach that he was using. Frankly, right now, it's like I am using them with change sets and like the change set functions that say, you know, this is required, this is the validation. So I, I'm still kind of thinking and processing over what he said and kind of what does that mean? Because I, at, I do recognize at times in some business contexts, I'll have a custom change set that is for that purpose. And it might not be put onto the actual change set. And maybe that's just needs to be refactored and better organized. But maybe that's also an indication that there are special cases. So I don't know. I'm still kind of on the fence on that one. I, I agree that there's special cases. Like that's one of the things I love change sets about. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's still the usual Rails active record modeling that's sticking with me, but there's still got to be some base change set. I feel like some base change set to help you prevent you know, shooting yourself in the foot with, you know, things like in making sure that there's a unique constraint on these things or, you know, if you yeah. don't have that also in the database, right, if you're doing that only on app side or if you have, I don't know, uh, limitations like database limitations, like uh, size limitations on a, on a character varying, you know, column or something like that. Like you don't want to have to worry about all that stuff on your web layer, you know, on your sanitizing layer, you want you want that to be worried about on your persistence layer. So I I get the change set saying that it's valid and we're good to go, but at some point that I feel like in my in my world, that change set has to go through another change set. <laughs> that well, that is change your sets protection. can be piped, right? <laughs> yeah, that's just true. That's true. And maybe that's maybe that's one of the things that that bugs me about about Ecto. Sometimes it's not about Ecto. I love Ecto, but it's like I, I still haven't situated how to organize that part because yeah, you know, a year or two ago with Phoenix, I'd have one change one mega change set, and I would have that be the the change set that the web layer uses, right? And once it's valid, 
I send it on its way into repo dot, you know, insert or something, and then we're done. Don't have to worry about any other intermediate layers. But that's coupling some things, right? That, that's that's a no-go for some some folks. And so I've been trying to do this idea of separating the web layer from the persistence layer. And the uh, especially in LiveView. LiveView makes this uh, much easier to try out. Have my embedded schema on the form so that the schema is about the form that's on the page. But then have a separate persistence layer and pass that over to that. The idea, though, is that whatever's valid on the web form will be valid on the on the back end. But that's not always true. And I, I, that's the there's some things there that are a little bit messier in my, in my mind. Like now I have to worry about copying change set errors back. So that way the error messages, you know, pop up on the web form or, you know, some more complicated things. And that just feels that, feel, that feels dirty, you know. So I'm not certain about this part yet, but I really appreciate the idea and I'm doing it, but there's just little, there's, there's, there's dark corners of that, I think so far, uh, but maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill here. I do agree, right? You have, like, if I have a unique index in my database, I need to handle that at that one change set that is tied to that database table, right? Yep. That's where I think, I feel it should be, you know, that interprets the the name of the index that's coming back in the error from the database connection, right? Mm -hmm. So I need to handle that there. And there are other things, you know, if I have a not nil constraint in my database table, I need to handle that in that change set. So I do think there are places that just, you know, you have to have that. And I think it belongs on the change set for that schema that's tied to the database table. But then there are other change sets where you say, how I edit this record in the view is different than how I create it. Like when I create it, I'm, you can set maybe an account that it's attached to. But when you edit it, you can't change that. And you can't change some other things, right? You Maybe you can only change the status in a certain way, right? So like there's different change sets yeah. for the different use cases. Mm -hmm. One thought that I've kind of had in this regard, because I think I've also struggled with similar problems that you're describing, David, which is interesting. But one thought I've had is like maybe having a, a common change set on your schema that's like has these different validations that you might want to run on your front end. So you could, you mm -hmm. could like pipe your front end schema list. Ah, but can you, I, I don't know if you can, maybe you can, but like if you had a common change set that you could pipe into, that's like, and ensure that this is unique and ensure that this is not nil. And this is not nil because those two are required, but you don't have to like know that what that's doing. Yeah. I know, just so you could like use it from the outside. I've had good success with schemaless change sets, but I've only been able to use them for simple models. As soon as you have associations built into there, like schemaless really kind of breaks down for me. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's it, it it's certainly for complicated scenarios where you run into these issues. And I think most people don't, which is great. That <laughs> means there's probably something else here that maybe I'm missing that I'm not doing as well in my mental model then, um, where they're able to avoid a lot of these issues. But I feel like in, in a lot of my apps, uh, I usually hit one of these things. So like, okay, okay, go, goodness. Now I'm going to have to, you know, do, do some weird change set stuff to get the to get a sensible maybe maybe this is what it is maybe i should just give up on really good error messages <laughs> maybe <laughs> there was an maybe error. it's okay <laughs> maybe it's okay if i just have a, like a catch-all and says oops something happened and then error log you know logger.error the rest of that and revisit that you know <laughs>
I did want to share kind of like the way I, I mentally model some of just like Elixir applications, right? And just in terms of how I help teach about it too. You know, let's take a, a big, like sway big step back, right? Like 30,000 foot view and just kind of come at it from this other perspective, right? I think there's three parts to an Elixir application, to running Elixir code. I visualize like a workshop. So you have a person that comes into this workshop and they're bringing some materials with them, like a block, a wooden block, right? So it's like very physical, okay? And then they come up to a workbench. And on this workbench, there are some tools. And on this workbench sits a binder with papers in it. You know, you can imagine like the little laminated sheets kind of a thing, right? Where you can flip through the different pages. And that binder of pages is a module, Because all a module is, is a collection of functions and functions are instructions. So it's just, I've got a bunch of pages here and this is my collection of instructions. And so the person is bringing this block and they come sit down next to on this workbench and they start flipping through and they, they, they find the page that they want because they want to make a transformation. They want to do something to this block. They want to make a change to it. And so they're, they find the page they want and they start following the instructions and the instructions say, Hey, Say, we're going to use the bandsaw that's sitting right here, and we're going to shave off an inch on the right side. So you take your block, and you get all situated, and you, you do that. And then you follow the instructions, they continue, and then, okay, get some paint, and we're going to paint this side of the block red. That set of instructions might say, to continue with the next step, go to this other bench and refer to this page in, in, the, in the workbook there. And so if you kind of break that down, like, what is this that we're actually talking about? So the block, the wooden block is data, right? That is the data. And that exactly what you guys are talking about with transformations, right? That is just a series of transformations. And the code might be referring to tools like libraries or something like that that help us do transformations. Like a bandsaw makes a cut. Painting makes a transformation, right? It's now change an attribute of it, like its color. And the person that is doing this is a process because... A process is the only way Elixir code runs. The only way it runs and it does anything is because a process is doing it. So like if you're doing Elixir in an IEX shell, there is a process that is created for you that is running those commands. So you're basically kind of like it's improv night in the Elixir room, right? Where you're just like writing out handwritten commands and say, hey, here's your instructions. And if you want to see who the process is, you can type self open paren and closing paren and see the PID for the process that was recruited to run your instructions. And then you can give it data and have it operate on that data. If it's a running web application, the Phoenix framework is recruiting those processes for you. And it says, hey, I've got a process. And when a request comes in, exactly like you guys are saying, right, it's data, right? The request is a data structure that is just a blob of data. The way the data moves is because a process is carrying it around through the workshop. And that is how it gets from one place to another place. The way that anything happens to it is because the process is doing something. And you can actually call that like an actor because this actor is acting on the data and they are carrying around the data. And that's how it moves through the whole system. So then as it's going through the different workbenches, through different tools are being used, it's being transformed and modified and attributes are changing. Then eventually the person says, you know, I'm, I'm done. And they bring it back out of the workshop. And now it is a response, like in terms of a web application. Mm-hmm. So I just think of when I think of my Elixir code, my running systems, I think a process 
has to be used to make anything happen. I don't usually have to think about creating a process to do that because Phoenix will do that for me. IEX does that for me. When I run mixed test, it's doing that for me. It's getting and starting that process. But nothing happens without a process actually taking the data and doing something with it. And then if you just kind of imagine these modules, not as classes, not as objects, because they're not. It's just a set of instructions. It's a binder with a bunch of pages. And anyone, I can have multiple people, multiple processes or people or actors looking at the same binder and following along the same page at the same time. And that's concurrency, right? I can do that because the code, the set of instructions, it just sits there and can be read by any number of processes concurrently. And they, they can all follow the instructions. It'd be at different points on the page and it doesn't matter. It's perfect. That's kind of how I like to think about that. Yeah, it's a great, great analogy. You know, like it makes a lot of sense. As you're describing that, you're, you're describing like the workshop, right? And I feel like that that's, that's why functional programming resonated with me was because I, I focus on the transformations on the data, you know, and, and the instruction sets are the binders, you know, inside of the workshop and you have the tools to help you do that. I don't focus so much on the workshop itself. I focus on the transformations of the, of the, of the wood, you know. I'll be honest, when I'm running my tests, I'm not thinking about the whole workshop at that moment. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about, can I get this transformation right? He's just thinking about yeah. the table saw. That's my point. And so like with object-oriented programming, I feel like that my focus first has to be on designing the workshop. And then I can, fo- and then I can focus on how, how the data transforms in it. And if the data ever changes, then I have to adjust the workshop. You know, but with functional programming, I still get to focus on the transformation, the data, and I can build the workshop around it as I as I need it. But I don't have to focus on that so much. It's more like you know, I could be in a garage. That's my workshop. I could be out on the <laughs> could be out on the on, on the driveway. It doesn't have to be something that's all that nice. It's just a binder of instructions, and you need to have some minimum requirements, you know, for for that kind of stuff. And, and in my case, minimum requirements usually include. Ecto. <laughs> that's that's my big hammer. So, but yeah, I really I really like that. I like that description. It makes a lot of sense. What I think is fun though is when you think about refactoring code, it's kind of just like, well, I'm going to rearrange my workshop, make things easier to move from one station to the next, make it easier to find it. Like, where is this thing in this binder so I can go find it? It's like, oh, it's it's a mess. That's all refactoring is, and that's when we talk about code design or namespace organization or file organization. We're just trying to make it so like that I'm not working in a pigsty, right? That I can find what I need. I'm not just like continually recreating and bringing in a new bandsaw because I couldn't find the other one. It's somewhere in here, but I couldn't find it. So I brought in another one. It happens to be a different model. So it works a little differently too. You know, so like that, that's, that's what we're trying to do with code organization, I think. Yeah. As a web developer, primarily, you know, I don't, I don't have to think about processes so much. But the more that you dive into just pure Elixir code or big data transformation pipelines, you're going to have to start managing your, your actors, you know, your workers that are, that are doing things. But even then, there's great tools like Flow and Broadway and GenStage and all that kind of stuff that you can just get to work, you know, right, right on it, right away. But as a web developer, I, I, get, to, I get to ignore some of that stuff, <laughs> which is pretty great. But speaking of that, speaking of web development, I think one of the recent additions, we've talked about it here, is not going to surprise anybody, but one of the recent things that has happened in the web development world that re- really changed the way that people have a mental model about their application is Live View. You know, there were there were certain places you put your your code. You got controllers, you got views, you got templates that get compiled into into your views. You got you know your router. 
with LiveView, some of that stays the same, but basically I don't really need controllers anymore. So like that whole whole classification of stuff, you know, where that whole bag of tools, don't need it. It's it's interesting, you know, like this is it's the same kind of data coming in. It's just I got a much bigger tool now, you know, it's much, much quicker on, on chopping up the wood. How do you guys, uh, how, how do you two figure out how to work out all of the different ways to template your code, your, you know, your, your HTML and all that with LiveView? Because that certainly changes the game. Well, I know when LiveView first was released, we were very early adopters, at least experimentally. With that, we've watched there been be a number of different changes including things like, well, we're going, you know, we assume that a component is completely self-contained, the code and the template are in the same file, to now, like, if, if you use the Phoenix Live View Generator, it's going to split out your templates from your code, but the naming convention will help you line them up really well. Things like that, there's been some maturing and like, you know, how do we want to arrange this? You know, where does this go? Has been refined. Maybe a mental model that people bring into Live View from React is, you know, the idea of components. I know in my experience with React, I was very tempted to use the idea of like stateless components to wrap everything up neatly. And because they're so easy, like why not make them as small as possible and wrap them as many times as I need in like the thinnest wrapper as possible? I don't know. And maybe people write different React, but that's kind of how I thought about it. And that mental model didn't translate very well into Live View in my experience and probably in other people's experience too. I think I had a bit of a hard time adjusting my mental model to away from that. I know as I've written and Mark, you kind of touched on it, like it kind of assumes that they're self-contained. I don't think there's a wonderful story in live view yet. I think that surface is helping in this department, but I don't think there's like an amazing story for like making just loads of live view components that can just be nested any depth anywhere. And so some of the components that I've made have been specific to the situation and just a tool to help organize my shop a little bit, but not necessarily a massive component library that you can just do anything with. Does that make sense? You bring up that point, like when we were first adopting live view, one of the mental model problems that we had was with uh, React, I knew how to pass in a callback. Like I was passing in a JavaScript function reference. Right, for like an on-click or something. Exactly. And then you come into a live view and it's like, this doesn't work that way. How am I supposed to do this? And it's so, like, there was some a uh, little bit of a struggle there while we kind of figured out what that meant. And I just know I have seen some situations where people have, like you're talking about like these very elaborate or large component libraries that are people are building out in React, where they have like increasingly small pieces that are everything you just everything is being composed together, right? And I think one of the problems is, is people say, all right, I've got I've gotten maybe even an existing spa. And I want to do this now in live view. So like, how do I just like direct map this over? And I think that's the same problem you're going to get if you come like and say, here's my existing node app or my Ruby app or something. Just pick it up and drop it into Elixir and try and do it the same way. You might make it work. It's not going to feel right, right? It's not the right way to to structure it and organize it. You're going to end up, you know, like if you're doing that with Ruby, you're going to end up creating a bunch of gen servers that act like objects because that's the way you think it should work <laughs> as opposed to a different approach. 
And if you're a startup, that's okay because you got to work in product now. <laughs> but <laughs> you're gonna have to uh, you're gonna have to revisit that at some point as uh, scale becomes an issue. I think that's where a lot of folks have to come to terms with uh, some of their history, you know, <laughs> to make things work even better and even faster. You know, you really got to learn the platform that you're on. You know, in the case of LiveView and components, it may not even work at all if you try to you know copy and paste React style code into uh, Elixir and LiveView. Well, yeah, like one of the anti-patterns that you'll see when people try to do that is you'll see like where they're either creating, you know, deeply nested live components that are just mirroring these component trees that they were using in React or Vue. That's not the right approach in Live Vue. But it's like no one told them it wasn't the right approach and they're having a hard time with it and like, this sucks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, you know, that's, that's part of the challenge of, you know, trying to figure this all out on your own maybe, or like with a small team who's totally new to it, you don't have somebody who's already figured it out, or uh, you haven't like looked at any particular learning sources. That's a challenge too. So I know when we first started LiveView, there were a couple of things that didn't exist that we have today, like Phoenix Target, for example. The story has definitely improved over time. And you know, one thing that I learned, at least through this journey was this concept of if you can get over the the idea of like not nesting a lot of levels of components, one pattern I've kind of adopted that's kind of helped with my mental model is um, if you just pass in anything you want into a component, and then that component will use, think of it as like assigns or props. No, it's, it's assigns in LiveView, but in React, it's props. Like anything you pass into a component, if the component needs a certain assign, it'll use it. But if there are any assigns left over, just pass that into the HTML as attributes. And that kind of like opened up my components to work as I would expect. So if I had a button, for example, and I wanted to say, actually, your your Phoenix target and your event name, your Phoenix click attribute name are these two different things. Like I can do that on my button, right? That I don't know. Once I kind of like thought about that and figured it out, it was like, oh, why haven't I been doing this the whole time? Like, why should I take in a specific assign called target that like sets a Phoenix target? Why not just like accept all the attributes possible? And if anything doesn't match up with what I'm using in my component, I just forward it on to the HTML. And that kind of just enabled my components to work, I guess, anywhere or maybe not anywhere, but they were more reusable. Yeah. And just the, the key to that is that you're using in the component for the rendering, you, you can use content tag. The options get passed in. You can pull off whatever you want. It's like, oh, I'm going to do some special meaning around that it's valid or not, or, or it has right. this help text or not. You, know, you can pull that all off. And then everything else just splat it into like the content tag and it will, it will get the Phoenix click and the Phoenix value and like the whole sets of Phoenix values that it might have and all that yep. stuff. Yes. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about how do I parse that out and having props and what's valid. Yeah. The one thing that I still feel like is maybe missing and maybe somebody needs to just explain to me how I'm wrong. But this idea of like, if you pass in a Phoenix target and a Phoenix click into the HTML, then the JavaScript side of LiveView will handle it and send it to where it needs to go. Sometimes I want to do a little bit of manipulation on my LiveView Elixir side and then send it to where it needs to go. But that only works if the place where you need to send it happens to be like your main live view process. If it's like some component in between you and your live view process, it gets a little sketchy. Mm -hmm. 
And I think because that story is missing, or and and I say missing, assuming that like I'm totally correct in saying that it's missing. I don't <laughs> like I don't know if I'm correct in saying this, but if that story existed, then I think all of a sudden people would have a better time fitting their React model into the Live View model because that exists in React. Like you can send it to any component anywhere in between you and your main component, but you can't in Live View on the Elixir side. You can, but it's it's just it's more difficult to think about. Well, that's been a fun discussion, just kind of talking about uh, how we mentally model the different, be it the Elixir code or the front-end UI approach of React versus LiveView and those mental models and how they're different. But I would love to hear from you. So we would love to continue this discussion with anyone who wants to take part. And we're going to do that over on the Elixir forum. So check the show notes for a link to where we can continue that discussion. And please weigh in on how you think about this, how you model this, maybe points where you had the wrong model and now you fixed it, or if anything resonated with you with, with what we talked about. We'd love to continue that and hear from you. But that's all the time we have for today. So thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Thank you.